I'm Pastor Mark, and I'm really excited to be here. Yes, Pastor Dan, uh, let the cat out of the bag. I am nervous, and it's kind of maybe it's weird for you to hear that, uh, especially I've been the pastor here and spoken hundreds of, of times over the past 10 years, but I am, I am nervous. Uh, I'm nervous because uh, this up to this moment, been really just, I believe God has been preparing me and, and this community uh, to go through this kind of content. That I, I believe that the first 25 years of my life, my, uh, years of rebellion, that, that I learned things about being far from God, that I believe the past 19 years of trying to follow Christ and, and read the scripture and read uh, more learned people than my, myself have, have kind of woven together questions that I've had along the journey. I believe that the past 13 years of just being a pastor and having countless conversations about faith and the gospel and, and exploring it with, with, with you guys at Red Eye and on Twitter and Facebook and here uh, has really just uh, moved us and moved me. And then especially the last two years, just really asking this question, what is the gospel? Those of us who are followers of Christ, those of us who are Christians, now this seems like a very big question a central question. And as I've kind of unpacked it and had conversations with people, I've realized that maybe we're not as clear on this gospel thing as, as we should be. Another reason that I'm nervous is because this book is just not me, that, that uh, I wrote it with, John Bickley, who's on Wise Council here, that, that many people who I respect uh, have, have read this book, and, uh, and there was with much fear and trepidation that, that they read some of the previous copies, that my growth group uh, and I had, had gone through this, and, and uh, to make sure that the, the going deeper questions are conversation-worthy that there's been people who have edited it and, and, and uh, supported it and given their time toward it, and I want to honor them. I also uh, just have this, this burden that I believe this is the most important thing that I have been entrusted with to teach in, you know, a long time, that that I believe that, that God has prepared me and prepared our community to do something special, that it has been my prayer that, that this will be a not just another series, but a transformational series, a series that truly changes our hearts and minds, and not only for the benefit of ourselves, but what lives beyond it. And for that reason, that, that this book, even though you hold it, is just a pre-release copy because it is still open for changes, that, that I still want to, as our church goes through this, I want to have conversation. And, 
You know, is this right? Is this not right? Can it be refined? Because I believe that in the 21st century America that, that we have come to a gospel deficiency. And I think that that has had devastating effects on the church. So as we embark on this journey together, you are part of the journey, but you're also helping to navigate the journey. And that's why I think it is so important that, that if you're not in a growth group, to join a growth group, to sign up for one after, after the worship gathering, to be having conversations about this, to take this material seriously, because we are people of the gospel. And if we are straight on anything, we should be clear on what that means and, and how it instructs our lives. So the six symbols of the gospel over the next seven weeks as we're going through this series, basically the series uses six symbols. I know, big surprise. <laughs> uh, it uses the, the Star of David. It also uses the Cairo, which is uh, the oldest uh, symbol uh, that of, of Christianity. At least scholars think so. Many scholars think so. Uh, it's the symbol for Christ, the cross, which are all familiar with the empty tomb, the fish, which is a symbol for the church, and then a new kind of cultural one, infinite love. Of course, what's true of these symbols, and in all symbols, it's not the symbol itself, but it's what the symbol communicates. And again, it is my hope and my passion that, that this is just an easy way to allow symbols to do what they've always done. And that is to guide conversation, to keep complex information simple and easily retainable. So what is the gospel? That's the big question, right? And we're going to spend the next seven weeks unpacking that together. But as most of my or all of my sermon prep and, and writings and conversations, you know, that, that it happens out of conversations, it happens out of conversations with people who are part of our community, that having these different elevated conversations and, and then other people that, that I just meet at Red Eye or on Facebook or Twitter or, or things like that. And one thing I've found is in my engagement in this kind of personal journey that I've heard this word gospel and people using this word gospel quite a bit. And what I've found is that there are a few kind of gospel deficiencies that I, that I think are prevalent in 21st century American church culture. The first one is I call the New Testament Christian. And that's somebody who doesn't really look at the Old Testament um, as part of their Christian faith. They just look at the New Testament. But by doing so, we're relegating um, 80% of Scripture is, is not relevant to our lives. That we throw out the prophecy, we throw out the, the poetry and the narratives and all of these different things. And we base our lives on only 20% of God's Holy Scripture. The next one is what I call four spiritual laws or the Romans road 
Christianity. Last Easter, I ran into somebody at Red Eye who who had gone to an Easter gathering somewhere else, and they were all excited. They were like, the pastor gave such a compelling and clear gospel message. And having been in this process, I'm like, tell me, I want to hear the clear gospel message. Save me a lot of time writing and any of you, like just, you know, I just, I want it. And they said, well, they, they laid out the Romans road, and, and if you don't know what that is, you know, you can look it up, Google it, and, um, and they finished it with a, with a bridge illustration. Now, hear me clearly, please. I am not against the Romans road, and I am not against people going to heaven and being saved. <laughs> I, I'm not. I've given my life to it. So don't take it that I'm against those things. I am 100% for those things. I, I just wouldn't call them the whole gospel. It's an aspect of the gospel. And then the last one that I've come across quite a bit is called uh, uh, red letter Christianity. You guys know what that is. People say, I just read the red. Well, this is even more gospel deficient than the New Testament Christian, right? And, and I think little, a lot of people don't realize that the liberal theologian Jim Wallace came up with this kind of read the red, and it was based on Thomas Jefferson, actually, Thomas, Thomas Jefferson's Bible, which uh, is in Washington, D.C. You can go there and look at it. Uh, and what Thomas Jefferson did is he liked the words that that Jesus said he just didn't like the things Jesus did. So he took his Bible and he cut out the words and he pasted Jesus' words in the journal because he liked the teaching, but he didn't like the miracles and he definitely didn't like the turning over the tables and everything. And in the Jefferson Bible, it ends, his Bible ends with the stone rolling in front of the tomb. Again, I am 100% about the words of Jesus. I have given my life to it, right? But it's not the whole gospel. I kind of look at these things and I think that there's lots of different variations of it, but they are selective truth, that they are 100% true. They're just not the whole truth. And in this series, I'm just going to warn you that you're going to hear stories. If you've been around here for any length of time, you're going to hear stories that I've told before. I only have so many stories. (laughs) So, sorry. So, but if you're new, hey, this is a new story, but you'll probably hear it again later. But so, Selective Truth, the best uh, kind of illustration out of my life that that I can tell about Selected Truth was several years ago... I did a race called Escape from Alcatraz. It's a triathlon. Triathlon is when you swim, bike, and then run. So, yeah, I swam from Alcatraz Island to San Francisco, and then I got on my bike, and then finally I ran and uh, to the finish line. And when I was on the bike portion of it, I was going along, and, and there was this big hill. And I'm going up this hill and riding my bike, and then this pro who ended up getting second in the race, he passes me going up this hill. And I thought to myself, you know what? I may not win this race, but I am going to beat this guy up this hill. 
I am going to give everything I have, and I don't care if, you know, I blow up and die. I'm going to get up there. So I pass him, and I'm going as hard as I can. I'm sweating. My heart's going boom, 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 and all this stuff. And then he passes me again, and it goes back and forth, back and forth. And then finally, toward the crest of the hill, I dug a little bit deeper, and I got to the top. And I beat him to the top of the hill. That story is 100% true. But it's also very deceptive. Because remember, it's a triathlon and riding, riding your bike is the second portion of it. And if I was going to tell you the whole story, I would say that as I rode my bicycle up and over the pinnacle of the hill, I looked back and watched him running over toward the end of the finish line. I was on the bike. He was running. He was about two hours in front of me. Absolutely true story, just not what happened. And I don't think that people are, are intentionally trying to deceive uh, when they do that, but it shows you that we can focus so much on a selective truth, me beating a pro up a hill, and miss the real true story of I wasn't even close to him in, in the race. So what is the whole gospel? Well, gospel means good news. If you've been around the church for any length of time, you know the good news. And the good news starts with the story of Israel, which we're going to talk about today. And then next week, we're going to talk about the next part of how uh, it go, uh, that the Old Testament, the story of Israel, informs our understanding of the life of Christ. You see, Christ's life is largely incomprehensible without the Old Testament. We don't understand why He did the things that He did. And then the life of Christ um, shows us and makes us understand His love to go to the cross for us. And then the resurrection commissions the church, the fish, us, in the time that we are in. And as we eagerly look forward to the second coming of Christ. So, the story of Israel. Depending on the biblical scholar that you like to read, New Testament writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, and even Jesus, not writing, but speaking, quotes the Old Testament either 263 times to 695 times. That is a lot of references to the Old Testament. One of those examples is found in the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, which uh, Christians like to call Faith's Hall of Fame. You know that the 17 people who are written about in Faith's Hall of Fame, all of them are from where? The Old Testament. The Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39 and 40. All these 17 people, I added that, all these people earned a good reputation because of their faith, yet none of them received all that God had promised. Now, I want you to put that in your mind because that is critical. Yet none of them 
received all that God had promised. Verse 40, for God had something better in mind for us so that they would not reach perfection without us. And what I hope you'll discover today and really put in your heart and your mind that the Old Testament is not obsolete. The Old Testament isn't old news. It is not irrelevant. It is essential foundation for our New Testament Christian belief. Now, the Star of David, the Mahak David, the Star of David is essential. We've all essentially is two triangles, right? And they're overlaid. It's 12-point star. And this is for centuries been a uh, just a visual shorthand, right, for, for the story of Israel, for the, the children of God. And with this symbol, a lot of uh, it, 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 how I'm using it in this series, it, it represents the Old Testament. It, it represents the story of Israel. And the Old Testament, in a lot of ways, is a book or books of promises. Remember in, in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 39, yet none of them received all that God had promised. And the reality is that promises are sacred. Nothing will destroy a relationship faster than a broken promise. Break a promise to your wife or your husband. They will be upset. Break a promise to your friend. They will be upset. Break a promise to your children. They will be upset. My daughter has a heightened sense of promise, to say the least. It all came to a head several years ago. Promises to my daughter are contractual, unalterable, unchangeable. Even death will not get you out of a promise. I'm serious. People are always like, sweet Madison? Yes. Several years ago, something that her mother and I had promised her, just because of circumstances, things happen, it wasn't going to happen. So we, with fear and trepidation, informed Madison that, that this promise, we just weren't going to be able to do it at this time. And at that point, she had a meltdown of biblical proportions. You promise, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> In fact, I am convinced that if the yet unborn, scorned spirit of Madison was the first plague of Egypt to Pharaoh, that he would have constructed limousine chariots and taken the people of Israel to the promised land. Again, People don't believe that, but that's her. So finally, after listening to her scorn and her rant and, and all that, I finally, in great frustration, when I always do my best parenting, <laughs> I grab her by the shoulders and I say, listen, my beloved daughter, who I love so much, hear me now. Your father, me, will never promise you 
anything ever again. This I promise. It will not change. I, I just, and, and, and honestly, I, I have not promised her anything since then. And she was here at the earlier gathering. She's laughing because she knows. Because the promise thing just didn't work. And, uh, but it just goes to show that, that promises unkept or, un, you know, it not even, maybe not even unkept, but, but, but don't come into fruition at, at a time that we think can be very, very damaging. And when we look at Hebrews 11, that we see all these heroes of the faith, these patriarchs and matriarchs, that, that, that they had not experienced all the promises that God had promised yet. But God did it for a reason. Last year, I don't know if you remember, our church embarked on uh, an Advent, or excuse me, uh, a Lent journey toward the cross. And in that journey, we looked at Old Testament unresolved promises. And what we really tried to do was experience what it must have been like to have that anticipation of that promise, the anticipation of the Messiah, the anticipation of, of being restored and it not happening yet. And during my preparation in the, in the studies, I was really struck not maybe for the first time, but in a significant way by four different things. Number one, the multi-level connections among the unresolved promises to the patriarchs and matriarchs. I was really struck by that. Also, the resolution of these promises in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The commissioning of the church and then ultimately the second coming of Christ, which is still not a fulfilled promise, right? And I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about my mom. My mom, like Jesus' mom, mom, uh, was Jewish, or is Jewish. And when she was a girl, her mother, her Jewish mother, gave her a Mahak David, uh, a, a Star of David uh, gold necklace, just like a Christian mother would many times give a Christian daughter a cross, right? And she, she has always worn this. And when she came to faith, my dad took that Star of David necklace and he took it to a jeweler and he had a gold cross put on top of the Star of David. And she wears it to this day. This has caused my mother a lot of grief through the years. Acquaintances and friends just don't understand. They're all like, why do you hold on to the faith of your childhood? You know, you, need to be, you can't be Jewish. You need to be Christian. And I think that, uh, that this angst that my mother has had really boils down to something as simple as gospel confusion between two essential words, the gospel and salvation. The word gospel is English translation of the Greek word evangel. It's the word that we get our word uh, evangelical 
mean people of the gospel, and evangelism, people who are sharing the good news. The Greek word soteria is where we derive our word salvation. One of my favorite theologians, Scott McKnight, says this, many evangelicals, many gospel people, are really salvationists. What has happened is that we have created a salvation culture and mistakenly understood it as a gospel culture. Again, this is not to say salvation is not, is, is not important. Believe me, I believe it's central that we are being saved from something. We, and, and I do not deny that, but that is different than the gospel. That the gospel is something larger where salvation may be the turning point in our lives. That we are reunited with our, with our Creator and, and, and begin to be restored. The good news happens way before that. Actually, it happens in the story of Israel. And I believe that the dominance of the salvation culture has, has had devastating effects on the church. Pastor Eric referenced it in our panel last week, talking about uh, kind of a salvationist uh, mindset that, that it's almost like you, you have this living water, but you put it in a container and you just hold it here and you don't do anything with it. What happens to water when it's stagnant? It goes rancid. But Jesus is the living water, kind of this image of a flowing river. And, and hopefully all of us have had the experience of, of drinking out of a flowing river, a stream, mountain water, right? I'm not talking about the bottled stuff that says mountain springs. I'm talking about actually putting your mug right into that cold water. It's invigorating. And it's completely it's still water, but it's completely different. The experience is completely different. And I think that this kind of the salvationist culture uh, has led so many Christians to ask, well, what does the Old Testament have to do with anything? Because we've had a salvation culture and not a gospel culture. So, Fast forward in my mom's life many years, uh, um, not actually many years, a couple, a couple of years after she, she uh, recognizes Jesus as the Messiah and she's wearing her necklace and she went to go see a well-known uh, pastor speak. And she went up to meet him afterwards and, and he saw her necklace and he looked at her and said, you know what? You need to choose. You need to choose if you are going to be Jewish or if you are going to be Christian. So imagine, you know, uh, a gal, you know, she's probably in her 20s at this, at this point, and uh, this is what she said. I may be young and not know the New Testament as well as you, but I do know our New Testament Jesus is the foretold Messiah of the Old Testament. <laughs> My mom can bring it. I was like, cool. 
And of course, she's right. Jesus Christ. Christ is just a translation of Messiah into Greek. All of us who are Christians, we could just as easily be Messiah-ins. It's just not as homiletically pleasing, but, but it means the exact same thing. Jesus Christ, the Messiah. These are the same things. One of my favorite examples, I think, or at least the most powerful example, I think, of why the story of Israel is so important in a Christian, a Messiah ends faith, is the story of the angel coming to tell Mary she's pregnant. Now imagine this. You are a young Jewish girl in Jerusalem or in Israel. And the law says, if you get knocked up outside of marriage, you can be stoned and killed, right? So, the angel says this, don't be afraid, Mary. Oh, okay. (laughs) For you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him a throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, how many Jewish or story of Israel references were just in that kind of proclamation? Many, right? But an angel just told an unmarried girl who could be killed that she is pregnant. And you know how Mary responds in verse 38? Let what you said come to pass. Let what you said come to pass. Could she have possibly said that if she did not know the Old Testament prophecies? Could she have possibly said that if she had no clue, they had zero context of of what this meant? Of course she had the context. She had learned the Scripture. She knew the prophecies of Isaiah. She knew that Isaiah had prophesied that, you know what, The, the coming king, the Messiah, was going to be born of a virgin. But that's not the only reference in the Old Testament. That is just an example of why knowing our Old Testament scriptures, the story of Israel, is so important. But I think probably the first giving of the gospel is this in the Bible. Like a lot of times, again, New Testament Christians, we think, oh, the gospel is a New Testament thing. It's not. It is a story of God thing. And do you know that the I believe that the, the first uh, proclamation of the gospel is found in Genesis 3. In Genesis 1 and 2, that we have uh, the account of the creation of the world and of all, of all creation. And God creates this ideal state. I believe the ideal state is perfect harmony between 
God who is community, who is relationship, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, creates the earth to be in perfect harmony with itself and humans, man and woman, to live in perfect harmony with nature and with God. And then in Genesis chapter 3, something happens. That the sin of I comes in. A lot of times when you ask people, what's the original sin? You know, eating an apple or something like that. Oh, okay. No, the original sin is the sin of I. What did Satan tell the woman? If you eat this, your eyes will be open and you will become like God. I want to become like God. So with that desire of I, that I want to be like God, that, that the curse comes in, the curse breaks apart the ideal state. And no longer do we have perfect harmony with nature and perfect harmony with God and perfect harmony with each other. But the sin of I is busted it all apart. And God in chapter 3 is going through all the things that are ha- going to happen because of the sin of I. Well, you know what? how cool our God is, how loving our God is? In the midst of the curse, He presents the gospel for the first time. In this kind of nuanced way, he says, you know what, though? All this bad stuff going on, that through you, Eve, that I'm going to bring someone who is going to crush the head of the serpent through your seed, which is the first inference to the Holy Spirit in the virgin birth. It's like, here's your punishment, but I'm going to make it right. Here's the good news, as bad as it looks right now, that I am going to restore the ideal state. And through that, he establishes something even more profound that many times we don't miss. Because this is what? Is this the first fall or the second fall? It's the second fall. The first fall was when, what? The original sin of I, Satan said, I want to be as strong as God, right? And what happened? Satan and his angels fell. In a sense, broke from God eternally. And what God is doing here in the original good news is saying, even though you did the exact same thing as Satan, as you have joined into his camp, I'm going to make a way for you to come back. And it's not now. But I am going to make a way back. You might be saying, like, well, why not now? Why the whole story of Israel? Why wasn't until Jesus came, why was it thousands of years before God sent the Messiah to, to come? And the way I understand this is through a father's eyes. See, I think a lot of times 
people who are not parents yet are kind of at a disadvantage in understanding God. Because I think that there's a depth that you understand because you see child development happen as, as, as a parent. Um, probably the best example for me is my son loves waffles. He always has. He's a waffle hound. And I make waffles for him all the time. And all, all growing up, and you know, when he was, you know, two and three, we'd cut them all up and everything. When he was four and five, we'd cut them up and, and everything into little bite-sized things and everything. And one day when he was 10 years old, I was making waffles and everything. And I, I was busy and, and uh, he's just sitting there. Uh, I put his, you know, his golden brown treat in front of him, and, and I didn't cut it. I just was busy. And he's just sitting there, and then finally I hear this, like, Papa, Papa. I'm like, yeah. And he's like, <laughs> I'm like, what? And he's all like, you cut my waffle? And I'm like, dude. Cut your own waffle, right? And for then on, he cut his own waffle. Again, I'm not a very good parent. I know that. But, uh, but he's 10 years old. Three, four, five, you're cute. I'll cut your waffle. You're 10 years old. You're a big oaf. Cut your own waffle. And from then on, he had, he had cut his own waffle. And where it would be, it is appropriate for me as his father to cut his waffle. There's a, there's a point where I'm just enabling him and I'm not doing him any benefit. He is old enough to do for himself. He is old enough to understand that he can cut his own waffle. And that is a proper and good thing for him to do. And I believe that that is the same with the story of Israel, that I don't think that humanity was ready for the Messiah yet. We weren't ready to cut our own waffle yet. That, that we wouldn't have been able to, to understand this. And we're told in the New Testament in following weeks, we'll get more into this. But, but the law that was given for people that we're told in Galatians, that that law was given to help us understand that we cannot come to God on our own. And, and through that, we grew. And two, finally, humanity grew, not all of humanity, but, but uh, a lot of humanity grew to the point to they understood that they could not come to God on their own. I want to conclude with this that I think is a hangover from the sin of I. And another thing that being a dad has taught me. I have, uh, as a kid, I was subject to this. And as a father, uh, I have subjected my kids to this. And all of you have experienced something similar. Basically, uh, when I was a kid, you know, my dad would say, hey, we're going to go to Disneyland because I was in California. And I'm like, oh, Disneyland, woo, 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 you know, and everything. And we're all excited. And we're going along, and my dad's driving, you know, we, you know, like a station wagon with wood paneling back in the 70s and everything, all cool. You know, my mom with her mom with a beehive and everything. I don't know. I'm just making stuff up. But, uh, 
But, you know, my brother and I, you know, we were being little turds in the back, right? You know, you've been there, right? Like they're taking us to Disneyland and we're just being spoiled brats and everything. And what does a parent do? What's the classic parent do? I'm going to turn around if you guys don't shape up, right? As a kid, you know, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's unfair and that stinks and my dad is a jerk and blah, 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 blah. Well, I mean, I've done the same thing, you know. Going to, you know, take my kids somewhere and everything, and they're in the back, you know, arguing, and, and I'm like, knock it off, or I'm going to go turn this car around, right? And everything. How do we always view that? We view it as, oh, I, as the kid, am going to miss out on going to this really cool place. My dad's a jerk, or my mom's a jerk ass. <laughs> we never think about it from the father's side. I never thought about my dad getting time off work, saving the money to be able to take us somewhere, thinking through something that my brother and I would both enjoy, and him just he didn't care to go to wherever we went. He was doing it for us. And he did it because he wanted to spend time with his family. And that, him turning that car around was probably a bigger punishment for him than it was. But the sin of I did not allow me to see that until I had my own kids. Because then I would save up, and I would plan something that I wanted my family to experience. And because my kids were turds, <laughs> that none of us got to experience it. And let me leave you with this, and just let me propose this. God never wanted to turn the car around. God didn't want to send Adam and Eve east of Eden God had thought through this beautiful, ideal state where he would be able to enjoy his creation and his creation could enjoy him. And it was the sin of I that said, God, I don't want to spend time with you because I want what I want. And I am giving no thought to what you want. Separation perhaps hurt God even more than it hurt us, which I think sets the context for the rest of the story, the rest of the gospel. You guys pray with me.